Burn the Boats is proud to support VoteVets, the nation's largest and most impactful progressive veterans organization. To learn more or to join their mission, go to VoteVets.org. I think in large part, the military did what we went over there to do, which was to eliminate a terrorist safe haven. And we were continuing to prevent a terrorist safe haven at a relatively low cost. But at the end of the day, because of political decisions, um, we ended up losing the war. And it's a really, really tough pill to swallow for those of us that serve there, those of us that are still serving, and, and I think, like I said, for potential recruits as well. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. On Burn the Boats, I interview political leaders and other history makers about choices they confront when failure is not an option. My guest today is Chris Harnish, who held various national security roles within the Trump administration, including as Deputy Coordinator for Countering Violent Extremism at the State Department, and he served on the National Security Council as the Director for Transnational Threats. While on the NSC, he also served as the Director for Afghanistan. I asked him to come on the show to talk about his experiences in the final days of the Trump administration and to offer his insights on America's chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan. Chris, welcome to Burn the Boats. Thanks, Ken. Great to be here. So I want to set the stage first and get a little of your personal context because I realize I'm talking to a fellow vet, an OEF veteran. You served on the ground in the Army in Afghanistan. Uh, Can you share a little bit of your journey, your professional journey, and especially how that time on the front line set you apart from your your colleagues at the State Department? Sure, happy to. So I, I think a couple points that are important to highlight here for the purposes of this conversation and for the purposes uh, of your audience's awareness is, number one, I am a veteran. Um, I don't want to uh, portray myself as having fought on the front lines. I did not. Uh, and you know, I don't want to uh, take away from those that did by saying that I did. I was located in Kabul. I was a, an intelligence officer. I'd say 80% of what I did was working behind a desk doing intelligence analysis for a counter-corruption, counter-organized crime, counter-insurgency uh, task force. Uh, that being said, I, I was there for 14 months uh, and I think being there on the ground gave me tremendous perspective, uh, both from a kind of a, a counterterrorism perspective in subsequent roles. And also when I was at the NSC, it certainly helped me, I think, uh, bring a, a unique perspective to my role as a director for transnational threats and, and director for Afghanistan. I, I think that policymakers, wherever they're serving, whether it's in the executive branch or the legislative branch, I think that if they're serving in a national security role, I think it's uh, kind of stating the obvious here, but they they derive a lot of value and benefit from having spent time on the ground if they are, in fact, veterans. Uh, so uh, one thing I'd certainly like to see more of over the you know, over the course of, of my lifetime is, is more veterans uh, engaging in public service, whether that's running for office uh, and you know, taking seats in, in Congress or whether that's uh, you know, serving in, in civil service roles throughout the government. I think that having that unique vantage point of having served on the ground, working with foreign partners, understanding how the military works, understanding how the interagency uh, coordinates with one another, that, that's, all, that's all just invaluable uh, experience and perspective. 
How rare was that experience uh, of being in uniform in a in a combat zone when you came back and and found yourself on the NSC or uh, at the State Department? Were there ever moments where you found yourself translating for the civilian establishment? So at the NSC, about 90 to 95 percent of the directors at the NSC are actually detailed from other departments and agencies. So many are detailed from, from the DOD, either as civilians or, or as uh, uniformed personnel. I myself was actually detailed there as an Army Reserve officer that was mobilized and detailed to the NSC. So at the NSC, you have quite a few people uh, who actually have had on-the-ground experience in in some sort of hostile environment, be it Afghanistan or Iraq or Syria or, or other places like Yemen or the Horn of Africa. Um, likewise, at the, at the State Department, uh, it was probably a lower number of colleagues that had served in, in combat zones, but certainly we had a number of diplomats and, and other colleagues there that had spent time in, the, in combat zones. And, and frankly, I found those that had served overseas, you know, whether it was in uniform or whether they served overseas as civilians, I found that it was actually very easy to work with them. And oftentimes, even if we uh, even if we didn't necessarily agree on everything, we uh, because we had that shared experience, we were able to, I think, understand each other's perspective a, a lot better. You know, and, and I do certainly tip my hat to all of those diplomats, uh, intelligence officers, USAID officers who have served in in difficult environments. Um, you know, one of my one of my uh, former professors at at Yale, a guy uh, I think probably your audience knows well, General Stanley McChrystal. One thing that he was very keen to point out was that, uh, you know, we should celebrate the service of not only uh, those who have served in uniform, but but overseas, but those who have also served as civilians overseas as well. And and I was certainly was very grateful and appreciative of those civilians I served alongside in Afghanistan and and that I served alongside the State Department and SC who had uh, experience in combat zones. The American withdrawal from Afghanistan is still... Uh, fresh on everyone's minds. Uh, frankly, I hope it stays that way. I hope we spend a lot of time thinking about what we did and failed to do there. Uh, but you know, given how new this experience still is for you, uh, what is your your short take, your hot take on on our withdrawal? You've written a little bit about it in the aftermath, um, but can you weigh in on that for us? Yeah, Ken, I mean, I've got to say it was devastating when it happened. It was saddening and it made me angry at the same time. Uh, You know, it was about a month ago, a little over a month ago that the surrender happened. And, you know, I don't even want to call it a withdrawal because it was, yes, we withdrew, but we really surrendered. We surrendered to the enemy and it was, and it was so avoidable. We could have avoided this. Uh, There were just a a series of just devastating political decisions, uh, through multiple administrations that that led to the uh, to, to this ultimate surrender and handing the handing the country back to a uh, group that was our enemy and that hosted terrorists that killed three thousand Americans have killed many others around the world. Um, you know, I, I think it was devastating for, on so many different levels. I think on a on a personal level, having spent time there, uh, it was it was devastating to see what's happening happening to the country. I think, and a lot of veterans I know feel the same way. 
I think it was devastating from a, a national security perspective as well. Uh, I think that from a counterterrorism perspective, um, we took a, a major step backwards uh, by handing a country over to a group that's going to provide or has historically provided safe haven uh, to terrorists. I think we handed the global Islamic jihadist movement a massive, massive victory. I think we'll probably see flows of foreign terrorist fighters headed to Afghanistan here in the in the coming months and, and years ahead. I think from a, a macro strategic perspective, it was also devastating. Uh, I would think so because uh, we lost a lot of credibility. I think the next time we decide or next time we have to fight a war, I think uh, countries are going to question whether or not they, they want to partner with us and, and ally with us. I mean, I think we really did our, our NATO allies a disservice with the, the way we withdrew and without giving them a heads up. Uh, in advance and giving them time to to prepare properly. I think from a human rights perspective, it's devastating. Clearly, we've already seen a number of egregious human rights violations by the Taliban since since they've taken over the country. Uh, I think from a women's rights perspective, it's really devastating for very, very obvious reasons. Um, I also think that um, it's going to have serious ramifications for our military and military recruitment. That's something that I still am very concerned about. I'm still in the in the reserves today. And uh, I'm concerned about our ability now to to attract new recruits, young recruits to the military when they see that if they were to sign up and they were to deploy and they were to be willing to give their life for the country, that all of that might not be be worth it in the end, that the, the political leadership could pull the plug on uh, on their efforts. And um, like I think at the end of the day, I mean, I'm going to put this really bluntly and, you know, I, don't mean to offend anybody by saying this, but people don't want to play for a losing team. And I think from a military recruiting perspective, it might be a hard pill for them to swallow to go sign up to basically play for a team that just lost a 20-year war. When I sh- And I need to emphasize this, when we didn't have to lose that war. We really didn't. I think you go back to as recently as 2018, and the Taliban only controlled 4% of the country. I mean, it, and and there was relative stability throughout the country since going back to, I think, 2014 when we had moved into a, a train advised assist mission. Uh, all this was avoidable. Um, you know, I, I think in large part, the military went over, we did what we went over there to do, which was to eliminate a terrorist safe haven. And we were continuing to prevent a terrorist safe haven at, at, a, at a relatively low cost. But at the end of the day, because of political decisions, um, we ended up losing the war. And it's, I think it's a, it's a it's a really, really tough pill to swallow for those of us that serve there, those of us that are still serving, and, and I think, like I said, for potential recruits as well. You alluded to failures across multiple administrations. I really hope you can provide some detail there because you served as the director for Afghanistan uh, for the NSC under the Trump administration. When did those failures really come to a head. You use the word surrender often. Um, do you place enough responsibility on the, the Trump administration for the, for the Doha agreement and, um, and cutting out the Afghan government? I, I do, yes. I mean, absolutely. I think that was a massive, massive strategic mistake. Uh, when we look at the, the course of the war over the past 20 years, I mean, you can pick out a few of the really kind of watershed mistakes and errors and I think that that's probably number one or number two. I mean, like, I think ultimately the final withdrawal, the final surrender in August of this year, right? I think the way that went about, I think that was the, obviously the, the, 
largest strategic failure of the war. But I'd say number two was probably the way we went about uh, negotiating with the Taliban and the Doha agreement. And, and to your point, Ken, cutting out, not including the Afghan government uh, in that process. I think that um, with regards to your question on when things kind of took a turn for the worst, um, I would say that uh, when General McMaster was the national security advisor, I thought that uh, I thought that he and his team, and I was not at the NSC at this point, I, was not, I'm talking 2017 timeframe. Um, I think he and his team there, I thought that they put together a very strong uh, South Asia strategy uh, that was going to bring stability, relative stability to Afghanistan. It was, you know, I think we, I can't remember the exact number of, of troops that we would have stationed in Afghanistan, but it wasn't huge numbers. Um, he was also very certain to make sure that all decisions uh, with regards to troop numbers were based on conditions on the ground and not, not on timelines. Um, they put a big emphasis on, on pressuring Pakistan to stop their support for the Taliban. Um, so that was 27 timeframe. I think that the Trump administration was going in the right direction then. Uh, and then it was probably mid 2018, late 2018, where things really kind of started to take a turn for the worst and, uh, you know, where we were negotiating with the Taliban and, you know, through the Doha process. And, um, like the Taliban got everything they wanted in that negotiation, and I don't think we got much of anything. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the legitimate government of Afghanistan that we had supported, we cut them. We made sure that they were not included in the negotiation, which was just a terrible mistake. And then another massive mistake in that political process, uh, something that I was at the State Department when this was happening, and it really bothered me at the time. And in retrospect, uh, you know, I, I was right to be bothered by it. And that was the prisoner release um, part of the deal, where basically the Taliban had requested that the Afghan government release, I believe it was 5,000 Taliban fighters from prison. And I can't remember the exact number of Afghan uh, soldiers at the Taliban was required to release, but it was a lot lower. I think it was 1,000 or 2,000, somewhere in that level. And so, you know, sure enough, the Afghan government, we, we basically, the U.S. military, pardon me, the U.S. government uh, really kind of twisted the, the arm of the, of the Afghan government into releasing these Taliban fighters. And when you have, um, when you release 5,000 Taliban fighters uh, at a time when the Taliban is gaining momentum in the country, I mean, that's just a massive jolt of support to the movement. And we know, I mean, this has been written about publicly quite a bit, that a number of those individuals that were released went back to the battlefield. Some went right back to the battlefield without, without skipping a beat. Some took leadership positions. So, you know, again, I think a lot of, a lot of just colossal strategic errors with the, the Doha agreement. Um, I served in the Trump administration and, and, and I'm proud of a lot of what we did in the Trump administration, frankly, on a lot of fronts. But I, I, I you know, just objectively speaking, I, there's no way that you can let President Trump off the hook for for what happened in Afghanistan. And and uh, but that being said, I think the ultimate decision to withdraw that was left up to, to President Biden, and he had he had his choice. He could have uh, he could have done a lot to kind of prevent the colossal um, collapse that, that occurred there in August and, uh, and at the end of the day he didn't. And, and so circling back to your question, Ken, yes, I think President Trump deserves quite a bit of blame, but at the end of the day, the buck stopped with Joe Biden on this one. And, and I think he deserves uh, the preponderance of the blame for how things turned out there. 
Yeah, I just want to make sure when we're floating words like surrender that we understand the the historical context and how that was a a timeline uh, and and the acquiescence to every single Taliban demand began in the previous administration. That's your reading as well, right? Uh, yeah. Look, look. I mean, yes. The 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 path to surrender certainly started in the in the Trump administration. Certainly started. I, I you know I, I can't put an exact date on it, but I would say probably that twenty nineteen time frame. Yes, that is when the path to surrender started, and and it was like I said, it was avoidable, and I wish we had avoided it. Well, I want to pick that apart as well because the presumption there, and you, I mean, you said this straight up, is that this war was winnable. I mean, you talk about wanting to be part of a winning team. And I'm I'm just wondering if that misunderstands the nature of our conflict there and uh, what we were actually capable of doing. In your mind, what would victory in Afghanistan have looked like after 20 years of empty promises? Yeah, so there was never going to be a surrender ceremony on the, the deck of the USS Missouri. Nothing that would ever look like that was going to happen on either side, right? We weren't going to surrender like that, nor was the, nor was the Taliban. Um, what I do think that victory would have looked like is relative stability in a country in which there's not a significant terrorist threat to the US homeland. And I do think that we had reached that point. I think that we probably had to keep a small number of troops and, and ask our NATO allies to keep a small number of troops present there in an advise and assist role. It would have done us a lot of good to also keep some contractors on the ground uh, that were providing basically uh, maintenance support to aircraft so that the uh, Afghan Air Force could continue operating. Uh, and we've got to keep in mind that the Afghan National Army, who we trained, we trained them to fight with air support and we also trained them to fight with medevac support. And uh, when we withdrew, we also pulled out our contractors that were basically maintaining those, those aircrafts. Uh, I think keeping a, a small intelligence presence on the ground uh, would have also gone a long ways because the Afghan National Army was also trained to leverage uh, our intelligence support. So that's the long way of saying that I think victory was largely achieved uh, there wasn't going to be a day where you wake up and say, oh, we won the war. But I think that we would have, we did achieve what we went there to do, which was to make sure that Afghanistan was not a safe haven for terrorism to launch attacks against the United States or our allies. And I think it probably would have just required a very small presence and enduring commitment uh, in order to maintain that victory that we had achieved. I guess the question most Americans would ask is, but for how long? Uh, I take it you you have a problem with the term forever war. I do, yeah. I mean, like I, I think it's a misnomer uh, for several reasons, but the first of which is that when you use the word war, you're insinuating that there's active combat going on on a, on a regular basis and that our troops are engaged in, in active combat. I mean, the reality is that... Uh, that U.S. troops were not engaged in active combat and they weren't going back into, I think, like I said, I think it was 2014. It may have been 2015, but it, it happened under the Obama administration that we largely transitioned to a, an advise and assist 
train advise assist role, as well as conducting air support and counterterrorism strikes with our with our special forces. So yes, I think that the term forever war is misleading. Uh, to your question for how long would we have to stay there, um, it all would be conditions-based, but I, I don't think it would be unreasonable to have a small presence there for quite some time. I mean, uh, you know, years or decades, um, just like we have in so many of the other places where the United States military has gone and fought and won wars, uh, you know, whether it be parts of Europe, Korea, um, we never fought in Japan, but uh, we've got a presence in Japan, certainly places like Kosovo. I mean, we've still got, I think it's the Pennsylvania National Guard that's still on regular rotations to uh, for peacekeeping missions in, in Kosovo. So I think, yes, we would we'd have to keep a small presence there for quite some time, you know, and I think it would probably come at a re- relatively low cost in terms of, in terms of blood and treasure. And, and that's not to say that, I mean, anytime you say something like in terms of blood and treasure, uh, you know, it can come off as if you're dismissing the sacrifice of those that would end up being casualties. And, and so I don't mean to dismiss that. I mean, the fact that, yes, there would be some cost in blood and you never want to see that, but I think it would be a, a relatively low cost uh, in, in comparison to the returns that we'd be getting uh, from that sacrifice. I guess the challenge I have with that analysis and the comparison to Kosovo or Japan or Germany is that Afghanistan is a fundamentally different conflict where you have a massively resourced, at least in terms of manpower, enemy that has a safe haven across a border that, as the fall of Afghanistan proved, was poised to to take over very quickly. I mean, I think there there is something to the argument that the fall of Afghanistan and how quickly it happened proved just how naive we were all along about the country. Yeah, so I think that you're right that Afghanistan is a fundamentally different place than those uh, than those other countries. And I think you know if you look back at the history of Afghanistan, it's the place where there's never been uh, perpetual peace. There's always been going back hundreds of years here. Going back, I'm thinking back to the 17, 1800s right now. There have always been tribal conflict or conflict between ethnic groups, uh, you know, throughout the country. Um, some of them have been uh, more intense. Some of them have, just, have been small skirmishes, but it's never been a totally 100% peaceful country. And I don't think that, uh, I think we'd be dreaming in chocolate rivers if we thought that Afghanistan was ever going to be a Jeffersonian democracy or as stable as a place like Germany or Japan. But that's not what we were striving for. What we were striving for was to keep the place stable enough that terrorists did not have a safe haven there. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. 
I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons. Oh yeah, can't forget cartoons. If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar. See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand museums and dive bars. Hey, you know the place, the sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies. So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com. I want to pivot because you have redirected your attention just in looking at your recent interviews and writings to a different kind of terrorist threat, and that's domestic terror and white supremacy. I would imagine that January 6th was a bit of a uh, forcing function for your, your thinking there. Am I right? Well, look, I think January 6th was one of the darkest days in American history. Um, I think it certainly shaped my thinking a little bit more on this issue. But frankly speaking, uh, my focus on the issue really picked up quite a bit in the summer of 2019. And that was the summer in which we had within the course of a week, three mass shootings in the United States that had ties to political violence or political ideologies, or at least that was the, what the initial investigations suggested. So I'm thinking of the El Paso attack. Uh, there was an attack in Gilroy, California, and there was an attack in, uh, in Dayton, Ohio. Certainly the El Paso attack had ties to a very clear white supremacist motive in which the perpetrator posted a manifesto online that uh, laid out his ideology, which was a white supremacist neo-Nazi ideology in which he held uh, great reverence for other white supremacist terrorists. The two other attacks that summer, it was a little bit more ambiguous what the actual root cause or what the motivation was. Uh, But it was that summer of 2019 where when I was deputy coordinator of counterterrorism at the State Department, when we said, we have got to take action. We've got to do more on this threat. And I should also mention that that El Paso attack, those three attacks, they, they came on the heels of the, the Christchurch mosque massacres in, in Christchurch, New Zealand. I think that was in March of 2019. So that's really when I started to focus very heavily on the issue and when, when uh, my colleagues at the State Department and throughout the executive branch really started to to focus very intently on the issue and devising strategies and plans to combat this emerging threat. Certainly, I think that January 6th was a culmination of a lot of what we were seeing. January 6th wasn't, it it didn't fit uh, exactly in line with these other types of attacks that I was referencing. I think there were other um, other dynamics, the January 6th attack that kind of separated it a little bit from these other white supremacist neo-Nazi attacks. But January 6th was certainly a day that uh, I think continues to shape our thinking on this problem set. And, and it also, I think it is a day that has, um, I think, brought a lot more attention around the country to this threat. You know, I saw one poll that I think it was 65% of Americans now view 
domestic terrorism as a greater threat or they're more fearful of domestic terrorism than international terrorism. And I think that poll was done in March of 2021. So January 6th definitely brought more attention to this threat than had been previously. But uh, we had certainly been focused on the threat for several years now. In the wake of El Paso and Dayton and uh, the other racially motivated attacks, did you feel that at the highest levels of the Trump administration, the threat was being taken seriously enough? So what I can tell you is that uh, that summer, we held multiple meetings at the White House on this issue. There were meetings at a senior level. Uh, they were not meetings in which the president would attend. He typically, regardless of the administration, the, uh, the president would not attend meetings at the levels uh, at which these meetings were being had. But uh, certainly there was focus on this threat amongst senior officials within the White House. And I can wholeheartedly tell you that colleagues throughout the interagency, and by the interagency, I mean the other executive branch departments and agencies that are focused on national security issues and homeland security issues, they were keenly focused on this threat as well. Were they empowered? Were they enabled and encouraged? Because the public face of the administration at that time included statements like good people on both sides or proud boys stand by. How do you yeah. square the two? Yeah, well, what I can say is that at the State Department, um, we certainly had the secretary's full support in what we were doing. I mean, at the end of the day, we were the first administration that designated a white supremacist group and its leaders as terrorists. And it was Secretary Pompeo who who signed that designation. It was uh, our team in the Counterterrorism Bureau that put the package forward to him, and, and he signed it, and he released a statement condemning white supremacist terrorism. Um, we knew what our role and authorities were and, our, and our, you know, what our responsibility was at the State Department. And I can say, you know, without equivocation, that we had the support of the secretary. And when we moved forward with the, uh, the designation of that white supremacist group, you know, I called members of Congress to tell them what we were doing. Uh, Republican members of Congress, I should say, and received their support. And, uh, and I also notified the West Wing what we were doing and, and received their support. I can't talk to the type of uh, response that other departments and agencies got from the White House. I just, I, I just don't know. I wasn't there. I wasn't in those conversations. Uh, but I, I never received uh, an iota of, of pushback uh, from anybody in the White House uh, or any of the senior leadership of the State Department when we move forward with these efforts. Now, Ken, I think you raise a really good point uh, that there were uh, there were some very, very unfortunate things that the president said that I think definitely ended up being inspiration for those that adhere to the white supremacist neo-Nazi ideology. And he hit on one of them when he said, uh, I think he actually hit on both of them, right? When he said there's fine people on both sides after the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally. And, um, and then when he told the, the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by, as a counterterrorism professional, I view those two days when he made those statements as two of the worst days in the Trump administration. Um, the worst day in the Trump administration, of course, was January 6th, which certainly the president had a, had a leading role in bringing people to the Capitol and, and inciting an insurrection at the Capitol. I think we'd be lying to ourselves and to pretend that he didn't have a leading role. So that's the long way of saying, Ken, that 
I personally, in executing my roles and responsibilities as a counterterrorism professional at the State Department, kept the administration informed. I kept the senior leadership informed. We never received pushback. Uh, but I think it is safe to say that the movement itself, the white supremacist neo-Nazi movement, drew inspiration from words of the president. I'm glad you landed there because I was going to push hard um, to make a distinction between well-intentioned policies, and it sounds like there were some, and providing moral support and quarter to terrorists. Um, And you started by drawing a very tenuous line between, I'll quote, unfortunate things the president said that ended up being inspiration to, you know, the unequivocal assignment of responsibility for inspiring an insurrectionist mob. I I think we have to be clear about that. It wasn't unintentional. Yeah. yeah. Look, I'll also say this. I've never met Donald Trump. I I don't know what's in his head or in his heart. Um, What I can say right now, though, on, on, you know, in early October 2021, is that the domestic terrorist threat to our country is as strong and as formidable as it has ever been. And I don't see that subsiding. I don't see that abating anytime soon. And I think one of the main reasons for that is because the movement feels like it has top cover. They feel like they have political top cover. They feel like they're being legitimized. They feel like they're being legitimized through both political leadership, through commentators that are on political talk radio and and on cable news. Um, I think it's extraordinarily disheartening that we don't have more Republicans that are willing to speak up and speak out against what happened on January 6th, but also, you know, white supremacist terrorism writ large. Um, you know, it's interesting because back in you know, the early 2000s, mid 2000s, when, when Islamist terrorist attacks would happen, a lot of commentators, a lot of politicians would, uh, you know, they would say, we need Muslim leadership to speak out and condemn these attacks and speak out against violence and whatnot. And over the course of time, I think a lot, much of the Muslim community did. And, and you know, you look at polls and surveys about the Muslim community's views on, on violence and, uh, and from about 2010 onward, and, and there, it's very low. I mean, and, and, and a lot of religious leaders, both in the United States and abroad, would make statements condemning terrorism and the use of violence to achieve a, a religious or political end state. And right now, I just don't think we're seeing enough of that from the political right. And that gives the that gives a lot of these adherents uh, what they view as top cover and, and legitimacy. And, um, you know, I saw a poll that came out of uh, the University of Chicago just very recently. Uh, it found something like 9% of Americans believe that violence is justified to return Donald Trump to office. That should be alarming to any American that 9% of our population, almost a tenth of our population, that violence is okay to return somebody to office. And just to kind of put things in perspective here, in 2013, 9% of Iraqis believe that suicide bombings were justified to defend the religion and to achieve religious end states. So the same number of Iraqis in 2013 that thought that Suicide bombings were justified as the same number of Americans today that, that believe that violence is justified to return somebody to office. And to me, it's, that's not a perfect apples-to-apples comparison, but it, I think it is 
telling enough that all Americans should be very concerned. And uh, and the reason I, I, I point out this 9% number is just to give the audience an idea of what size or what, you know, the chunk of the American population that does think that violence is, uh, the political violence is okay. And, um, and I think that we can push back against that if, if we were to have political leaders, uh, especially on the political right, who were to speak out against this. Well, it's no mystery why they are not having had a couple election cycles now in which to observe the behavior of senior Republican political leaders. They need this part of their base to uh, to stay in power because it is an increasingly minoritarian party. My question for you is, understanding why they're doing it, I can't understand what they think is going to happen in the long run. I mean, this does not end well in any calculation. What, what, the, um, what the political leaders who who aren't speaking up what they think is going to happen in the long run? Yeah. What's going to happen to their party, to their country, to themselves? You already have Republicans being driven out of office by the crazies in their party, and it's just getting worse. There is no energy for moderation. It's just a downward spiral, and downward spirals don't reverse themselves. Yeah. Look, I don't know what their, what their long-term calculus is. I think that the short-term calculus is is pretty obvious. You know, they, they don't want to upset one person. Um, it's really that simple. I think so. I think, you know, in that they don't want to upset one person because they are afraid that that one person has so much power that he can derail their political career. And these people are putting their political careers over the safety and security of, of their neighbors, uh, frankly, which is sad. Uh, I think, yeah, so what their, what their long-term calculus is, I don't know. Um, I think oftentimes people aren't necessarily even focused on the long term. They're just so focused on the short term. And so they're making these short term calculations. I'll tell you, though, as a Republican, I mean, it, it makes me very fearful for the state of our party. Uh, I think that we're going in a in a direction that I'm certainly a bit concerned about. Um, and it's a downward spiral right now. Uh, and um, I think there are a lot of very good leaders within the Republican Party still. But the more that we play into these racist and you know, extremist sentiments, the more the party loses its credibility. And I think you're also going to have a large chunk of individuals uh, not willing to be a part of the party anymore. Um, now, frankly, I, I, I still believe in the, the ideals upon which the Republican Party has stood for, for so long, uh, you know, individual liberty, individual responsibility strong national defense. Uh, and I hope that the party can circle back to those, uh, to those ideals and be willing to, frankly, stand for what's right. There doesn't seem to be a, a lot of motivation for that. If anything, the strategy seems to be to shrink the tent, but shore up the electoral machine, uh, the processes, to ensure that, you know, even with a minority of voters, power can still be retained. Are you that pessimistic? Um, and we look, we've had election experts on here. I know this isn't your bag, but we've had an election around the corner. And I yeah. guess the question I'm getting to is, what is the worst case scenario in your mind? And it might be a return of Republican control. 
look, I, I mean, this is tough for me because, um, look, I, I'm not, just to be clear, I'm, I'm not a political scientist and, and I'm, I'm not really very skilled at reading the political tea leaves here. Um, I'll tell you where my hesitation is coming in here, Ken, is, is that frankly, um, I think that Joe Biden and his administration uh, have not done a whole lot of good for the country over the past you know, nine months. And so I think you're headed into a situation in 2022, where there is going to be quite a bit of voter backlash against the the Democratic Party in in 2022. And so I I think you probably end up having Republicans take take back at least one of the two houses in in 2022. Um, And and my hope is that that the Republicans that do come into office in in 2022, that, uh, that they are true Republican conservatives uh, that are putting the ideals of the, of the party and the constitution above fealty to, to one person. And, and, and I hope they also are individuals that are able to reject the most extreme parts of the, of the party. Well, as you well know, hope isn't a strategy. And as a card carrying Republican, do you see the moderates in, in a position to do that or Man, do you see what I see, which is the moderates being purged? You know, we just lost. We're about to lose Anthony Gonzalez in Ohio. You've got primary challengers against anyone who's standing up to President Trump. It seems like hoping against hope that moderation is going to return anytime soon, much less in 2022. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I guess time will tell. You know, I'd like to see – I mean, personally, I'd I'd like to see – some of the more moderate candidates uh, succeed here. And, and look, I think we toss around this term moderate a lot. I, I want to be very clear here. A guy, I'm a Republican. And, uh, you know, when I say moderate, it's, um, how about a pro democracy Republican? Yeah, there we go. <laughs> I, I like, I like that framing a lot. I, I like, there we go. There we go. I, I, I like that framing a lot more a pro freedom and democracy, anti-authoritarian Republican. That's what I'd like. And, and a, a Republicans that, believe in the constitution. Uh, that's who I'd like to see win seats. Will they, like, like you mentioned, you're going to have some much more informed political, uh, scientists, theorists, uh, on this show than me. I, you know, I, I know what I'd like to see. I'm, I'm not sure what will actually happen though. I think that, you know, there are people that follow these polls a lot closer than, than I do. Well, here's hoping, um, and <laughs> try to end on a, a somewhat upbeat note uh, for every show. And I'm going to ask you the same question I I ask every guest at the end, which is what is the bravest decision you've ever been a part of? Look, I would say, Ken, that uh, I've been in some very fortunate situations to have had the opportunity to serve my country uh, in ways that I think matter, in ways that I think are are important and and are helping uh, advance the you know, freedom and democracy for our country and for others around the world, and frankly, that are helping fight, fight some really terrible people around the world. And all I'd say is that um, I've done my duty every step of the way. If, if some of those things that we've done have been considered brave, you know, I think that's, uh, I'll, I'll certainly be grateful if others were to classify them as brave. But for me, uh, and, and for many others that have served our country, I think we're just, we're just doing our duty. Well, thanks, Chris. It's been uh, great having you on. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Ken. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. 
For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Thanks to our partner, VoteVets. Their mission is to give a voice to veterans on matters of national security, veterans care, and issues that affect the lives of those who have served. VoteVets is backed by more than 700,000 veterans, family members, and their supporters. To learn more, go to votevets.org. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately 7 minutes. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.